Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have an interview with Lauren Gelfand to discuss the threat of coronavirus in Kenya and that as a lens for the rest of the African continent. Now the spread of coronavirus in Africa is behind many parts of the western world as we look at the infection rates in African countries and compare that to the likes of Uh, Italy, China, although obviously those numbers are highly suspicious, Uh, the UK and even America now. Africa is way behind the rest of the world, but the lag in recorded infections and death rates means that even if these African countries are experiencing very low infection rates, they are at the risk in the next two to three weeks of seeing a rapid increase in the numbers. Now, the specific social and economic conditions in many African countries mean the spread of the disease could escalate quickly, putting intense pressure on underdeveloped health systems. Just as an example, Kenya itself only has 155 ICU beds and their ability to quickly expand these is very different from Western nations. So the risk to Africa is significant, it should not be underestimated and I felt it was important to get somebody on to discuss this so we can be aware of the problems that the continent may face. But before we get into that interview, I do also just need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell or trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. And I also have a beginner's guide on there, which can help you understand everything related to Bitcoin if you're new to it. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is also an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. If you want to find out more, head over to kraken.com. Also, if you enjoy Defiance and want to support the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media and share this out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about this or any of my other shows, please do feel free to email me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good afternoon, Lauren. How are you doing? Fine, thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. No, not a problem. So... I'm uh, I'm just going to lay it out from the start. I'm not an expert in anything related to coronavirus. Um I just I'm trying to navigate this like everybody else and trying to find uh, the most accurate points of information because there is an awful lot of misinformation out there and I'm trying to also target unconsidered groups in this crisis. So in the UK, I've been looking at victims of abuse or the homeless. But also, I'm recognising that globally, there is an issue with maybe some of the more developing countries with their health systems. And you came strongly recommended as somebody to to talk to about potentially what's happening in Africa. So thank you for joining me. Uh, I think a good starting point is if you could just give a bit of your background and the work you do. Sure. Um, So thank you. I have a background. I was a journalist a hundred years ago and then moved into public health policy and have been working in policy advocacy and communications for health for an African research institution for the last several years. So I have a fairly grounded knowledge of African health systems and the structural as well as individual challenges that these countries that you rightly have pointed out are going to be facing as they come to terms with this disease, both in terms of the structural level, the infrastructure of the health system and other systems like the economic system, but also what it means for the huge number of Africans who work in the informal sector, who live in informal environments, and who really don't have the kind of safety net that anybody needs to be able to withstand um, the threat of a community transmission of a global pandemic such as the coronavirus. Okay, so and how long have you been focused on coronavirus now in your work? 
So I'm like you, I am not focused on coronavirus per se. I am more somebody who looks at health systems and the impact of disease management on health systems or the inability of health systems to reach populations. That's more my area of expertise. Okay, so let's dig into a bit of the details specifically relating to Africa. And you're based out of Kenya, I believe. That's right. I've been living in Nairobi for the last 11 years. So interestingly, it was Kenya that stood out to me because I saw a tweet the other day that said the impending problem for a country like Kenya is that for a population of 50 million people, there is only 155 intensive care beds, which I then I checked for the UK just as a, as a comparison. We have 3,700 for 66 million. And I think, so obviously we have a, a higher proportion of beds, but Per, per person, but we also, I think, probably have an ability to ramp up quicker in uh, here. So, uh, what would be interesting is to know um, what are the unique factors for Kenya that people outside of the country would not be aware of, and then how much of a, a lens is Kenya for the rest of Africa? Um, wow, those are two great questions. So, I think you know you got it right. As a country of fifty million with such a paucity of ICU beds the lack of ICU space is only illustrative of the deficits within the health system. Um, As you may know, Kenya moved from a centralized system of governments to a devolved system of governance over the last several years, which meant that responsibility for health service delivery, which was once at the central level, has now been devolved to the 47 counties. And each of those counties has their own pool of resources enhanced by federal funding. But the reality is is that a lot of these counties don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of assets. They don't have a lot of resources. And investing in primary health care has been more of a priority because it reaches a larger population than investing in the specialized health care that an ICU unit would provide. The other challenge also is that we have a huge and chronic deficit of health workers, again, which is more pronounced in the more remote areas, which means that there are very few communities in the country that benefit from having even a full-time doctor in those communities. So a lot of the healthcare is being done by lower-level cadres of health providers at lower-level facilities. So even the access to a larger hospital is compromised for so many of the country. And I would say that this is unfortunately not unique to Kenya, but is a situation that's confronting a lot of countries, particularly countries that are south of the Sahara, what we know as um, sub-Saharan Africa, beyond the the North Africa, sub-Saharan Africa divide, even though we don't really like using that term sub-Saharan as much as we used to. There is a paucity of health resources availed to the majority of the population. And when there are health resources, it's a very good chance that they are delivered by lower level cadres of health workers. So in preparation for this, I was I was reading quite a bit up on Kenya. And one thing that really stood out to me is a report that noted that one of the issues that somewhere like Kenya will face is a rural time bomb in that perhaps the facilities in the major cities are considerably better for than, than within rural areas. And this is a problem across all of Africa. Would you say that's an accurate statement? I think it's accurate to a point because I think that that um, obscures the fact that the rise of urban informal settlements or urban slums means that there is a rise of hugely densely populated and crowded urban spaces that they themselves don't have access to health facilities. You know, over the last generation, there's been this talk of this urban advantage in Africa where there's been migration from rural areas with the idea that access to services like health and education are better in cities. Yet because of that migration and then because of the the organic growth within these informal environments, we're seeing an erosion 
of that urban advantage in these slum areas, which means that access to health and education and clean water and sanitation is compromised even further in these informal areas and these informal settlements, which means that the spread or the community transmission, excuse me, in these urban slums is even more rapid than in rural areas because it's so many folks living in such a densely populated environment. So for example, in some of the urban slums in Nairobi, we've had repeated incidences of diseases like cholera that are highly contagious, rapidly transmitted around urban slum environments because of the lack of that public infrastructure to serve them. There is the challenge, of course, in rural areas, and this is one of the things that's been happening over the last two weeks since the first case was detected here in Kenya, a lot of Nairobi residents are sending their family members or going back to their rural uh, environments, which means that the buses that they're riding are almost potentially becoming vectors for that urban to rural transmission. And then they're going into communities where, as you rightly point out, there are very few health services. So we have the potential for community transmission in densely populated urban slums, as well as the risk of the disease being exported to rural areas where folks have access to very little, where literacy rates are low, where isolation, even though social distancing is supposed to be you know, the, the watchword of the control of the spread of disease, isolation and social distance aren't always the same when you're talking about rural, low literacy populations in, in African environments. So you've already preempted my next question because I was going to point out that the spread of the virus globally appears to have followed uh, the major transit points. So we have a high density in uh, New York now, London, uh, France, and in Madrid. And I was wondering if a, if a country like Kenya was to uh, have a, a late occurrence of coronavirus. I, I, I haven't seen any reported deaths yet, but I think it's about 28 infections. I'm, I'm not sure if that's correct now. But is there an, or, or was there, it doesn't seem now, but was there an opportunity to isolate a city such as Nairobi to protect rural areas? So I will say that in comparison to some of the over-industrialized countries, Kenya and a lot of its neighbors on the continent, Uganda for one, South Africa for another, Nigeria, you know, they've done a lot of that preemptive, really tough decision making to try and shut down the country to limit or inhibit the importation of the disease in a way that perhaps countries like the United States failed to do. You know, Kenya, we are Right now, the last flight left yesterday to the United States. There are three more flights that are only leaving to the UK this week. So Kenya is trying to do the right thing, cognizant of its limited resource base in a way that some other countries have not done. That said, we can look at some of the cases that have come into the country that are government representatives who made some very misguided decisions to go to places like Italy and Germany and then come back and choose not to self-isolate, which is just arrogant stupidity and they should all be jailed beyond put in like quarantine forever, but that's a separate issue. There's also been concerns that with some of the newly arriving folks up until flights were suspended, um, there was not clear guidance at the airport given to them. So there were folks who came in who expressed voluntary intention to follow government orders, but the government orders were confused. So these folks ended up arriving in the country, were told to self-quarantine, then were told to report back for government quarantine, then were put together in a group, then were driven around in a bus, and now we're having to quarantine in government facilities at their own expense. So there has been a little bit of a rocky situation, but I will give credit to this government for really doing the hard work of 
shutting down with the potential economic ramifications for the country to try and prevent that kind of community transmission that could be so disastrous, not only for public health, but for longer term economic stabilization. So, you know, the country is doing almost the best that it can with the tools that it has at its disposal. Compare so that to some, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so the conversation I had this morning was with a British lady who lives out in Beijing and we had a long discussion about the the role of the state in this because uh, we obviously there's a far more authoritarian regime in China, and I think some of the things that the, the say Boris Johnson and and the US are wrestling with and other states is the the fear that people have of the erosion of their civil liberties. And she sat she said, "Look, I'm just sat here in Beijing, saying, forget this. You can see what we've done here, and you can see the impact." And your your lack of a kind of a iron fist with dealing with this immediately with strong leadership is the reason you're seeing such a widespread. Do, do you think that? And, and she also referred to their experience across Asia of dealing with SARS and MERS. Do you think in Africa the experience of dealing with specifically Ebola recently, but also other conditions such as you mentioned cholera, tuberculosis, and AIDS? Do you think that experience? It, culturally has you on guard with the spread of a virus and you're more prepared whereas we you know, I don't really remember apart from something like swine flu in the UK which wasn't too bad I don't remember a situation where we've had to consider any kind of outbreak such as this so I think it's an interesting question I think you know unfortunately Africa has a lot of experience with dealing with outbreaks of highly contagious illness because of the structural deficiencies and the pervasive inequities that are very much a legacy of some of the colonial structures that were put in place and that were adopted by post-independence governments. But with those experiences have come really interesting lessons about how to adapt some of this guidance to the African context. You know, the idea of social distancing, the idea of being able to stockpile is anathema to the majority of the population. But there are some lessons that have been learned from Ebola that should be applied to the African context. For example, in Guinea, in West Africa, during the last Ebola outbreak, they did this thing called microcirclage or microcirclage, which basically it's self-isolating within a pod, not within a household, but within a pod or within a community where if an infected person is within a small community, say of 10 households, the rest of those households band together around that person and ensure that her fields are still tended so her crops don't wither so that she can still feed her family or childcare duties for her kids are passed around that pod. So the pod itself isolates as a pod. So it takes into consideration a more communal isolation. So that kind of possibility could work potentially in rural areas. It's again, when you get to these urban slum environments where folks are on the daily hustle, living informally, having informal sector jobs, living in informal sector housing with informal access to water that's more expensive than those of us who have the luxury of having piped water are having to pay for, that these things get more complicated. They're for a lot of people in Nairobi in particular, if you don't hustle, you don't eat. And if you talk to people from some of these slum communities, they would rather die from sickness than from hunger. You know, and that's, yeah. that's a huge, huge, that's not something, I mean, you have a homeless population in the UK, you have a homeless population in the US, but the stark reality of, I would rather die from sickness than from hunger, I don't think that reality is translated to an industrialized context. No, and another interesting thing you brought up, which again, there's a parallel with my conversation this morning, is whereby my guest Sarah was explaining that despite the Western opinions of China, she said it, there is a huge community spirit there. She, she knows her neighbours. People know each other. Whereas out here in, say, the UK and the US, we're a bit more individual. There isn't that always that collective response. Yes, in a time of crisis like now, we are seeing 
we are seeing some amazing acts of 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 uh, collectivism people working together to to help others but it's it is unusual for us here we are we are we do tend to live as the individual do you feel like that within somewhere like Kenya that there is this collective response whereby people are realizing that this is an issue and they will listen to the state and they will be a bit more compliant whereas we've seen here in the uk that we've still got packed tubes we've still got people hanging out in parks when despite the fact that they've been warned how dangerous this condition is how easily it spreads how the myth of this only is a myth that only affects old people uh, we just kind of still acting like individuals within kenya are people more collective around this idea of the threat and more willing to listen to the government and, and respond in, in, in a more responsible way? I don't know if I would be able to make a blanket response for that. I okay. think, you know, again, I think there's a socioeconomic element or factor that needs to be considered in an environment like this where there is such an inequity in the distribution of wealth. I think it's all very well and good for someone like me who has the incredible privilege of having a house and a pantry to be able to say, okay, I'm going to listen to the government. I'm not going to leave the house. I've got internet here so my kids can go to school. I have proper. I have a house on my property where my nanny can move in and stay here with me so she's out of her environment. And she can also help me out so I can continue to work, right? So my privilege helps me be more adherent to government. The, the lack of privilege that faces so many in this country, it's not that they don't want to listen, it's that they just might not be able to live in that way. So they would rely on the community. So I would imagine that in certain environments, and you know, we've seen this in some of the slum communities, there have been, there's this um, notion in Kenya called Harambe, where you come together to raise money for someone who's facing a funeral or school expenses or a hospital bill. And so even the poorest of the poor are always able to contribute something very small for someone else because they know eventually it's going to be their turn. So there's been a lot of talk about communal assets for buying, for example, water and soap dispensers for a community so that those communities that wouldn't have had access to water and soap now have that community resource. There are ways that people are looking at using these open air markets to make sure that not only are the traders able to still make a living, but the folks who live in those communities are still able to access the low price, low cost food that they need to survive on the daily. So recognizing that that community market, shutting it down is more of a public health hazard than leaving it open and putting in place as much as possible community distancing measures for those kinds of markets. So I think there is a reliance on one's neighbor and, and uh, an adherence to a social convention and recognition of the value of a common good here that perhaps in privileged industrialized societies has sort of gone out the window as, as we um, it's all for oneself and not not so much oneself for all so it sounds to me like whilst we have these quite strict lockdowns that are happening in europe that the model in kenya is a little bit more towards what's been happening in japan whereby how can they keep the wheels of business turning because i guess the, the the effect on the supply chains would be very different in a country like kenya with the risk of food production coming to a halt i, I would be more fearful of that in a country like kenya than say in the uk is that a, is that a fair observation I think so. But I mean, you know, you look at there have been some statements that have come out of some collective meetings of virtual meetings, I will hasten to add, of African ministers talking about the nearly $30 billion that the continent has already lost in its economy and the risk to about 30 million jobs in industries like tourism or airlines or international hotels and things like that. So I think there is an acknowledgement that there is, 
while there is local micro food production, since you know 70% of the agriculture being done on in Kenya in particular is subsistence farming, um, there are still some local supply chains. But the reality is, is that the international supply chains um, will be interrupted. Um, and the risk to the global businesses that have begun to take fairly successful route in economies around the continent are, are fairly precarious. But then, you know, also, we've just, as of tomorrow night, Friday night, there will be a curfew imposed in Kenya, which means that a lot of the revenues that are anticipated in night spots and bars and restaurants and stuff will be ground to a halt. And again, you're already hearing about owners of small businesses forcing closure and having to lay off their workers. That small percentage of population that's working in formal employment. You already hear that things like hairdressing salons, which are a vital micro industry, particularly for women, they're closing, which means women who are the main breadwinner in these informal environments are not going to be able to make their money. So there is a huge economic risk to any form of lockdown. I guess the trick is the level of enforcement. And that, again, can be contextualized or politicized depending on you know this long-time ethnic challenge that we've had in Kenya between different ethnic groupings, one that can be predatory to another, who is in the police and who are they going to go after and how are they going to have punitive uh, consequences for folks who are not from their communities. So there are all those other things in the crucible of uncertainty that a country like Kenya is facing as we grapple with what this disease could mean. What do you say to the, I mean, you're, you're probably a lot closer to the realities of this, but there are concerns uh, coming out from various places, and it might be more of a lens on the type of audience who follows my work, but there are a lot of concerns of people that this is being overblown, that the risks aren't really that great, that this isn't worth halting the economy. What, what, are the, what is the truth about this disease that you are aware of? I, you know, I, I find those people, I think that that's an, uh, the luxury of an arrogance that's just hiding a degree of ignorance. What is the worst that could happen if it's overblown, that fewer people die, that the climate improves? We've seen, you know, these stories about the canals in Venice and so on. What's the risks are so much greater from the unknown of not handling it than the abundance of caution that needs to be applied. I, I find that to be so irresponsible and just, I don't know, it's a hallmark of the indifference with which the entitled are confronting the world these days. I just, I, I have no patience for that bullshit, to be honest. Sorry for the bad language, but I have no, no please use it. it. No, well, I, I see a lot of it because I have two, actually have two podcasts. I have a, a, a Bitcoin podcast, which is, it deals with many people who are very suspicious of the state, but they want to separate money and state. And I have a lot of empathy for them. But I, I, I believe we have, uh, we have governments who have operated in, in, in really terrible ways historically, but I, I do have my suspicions. I do have my nerves about the erosion of civil liberties through this and do hope that we can retract from them in a post-coronavirus world. But I also, at this point in time, think we're dealing with something that is very extreme and it does require an extreme response. And uh, you know, in everything I cover, all the different topics I cover, whether it's I've just been out to Venezuela and covering Guaido versus Maduro or, or the riots in Chile, that I, I'm always dealing with a certain amount of disinformation. But right now, I, I, there is a huge amount of disinformation, and a lot of it seems to be wrapped into political ideology. And I find that personally very scary. Do you have to deal with similar levels of dif disinformation in a place like Kenya, or is this really a product of the West? No, I think we do. And I mean, if you go onto social media and you look at somewhere like Twitter, Kenya is a proud Twittering, tweeting nation. Um, and there is huge amounts of disinformation, a lot of it wrapped in the shroud of politics, but also 
cloaked in the veil of religion. You have only to look at what the president of Tanzania next door to us, um, where he said that he's calling folks to church because Jesus is the only thing that is going to beat the coronavirus, right? So he's urging people to gather together. Whereas we know, even just from recent evidence, that uh, patient 31 in South Korea, having gone to church and then out for lunch, is responsible for a huge number of cases. So I believe in science. I have always believed in science. I'm the daughter of a doctor and a former nurse. I have a background in public health. Science tells us that we need to be afraid of the potential of this to really irrevocably shape economies and populations. It is at our peril that we do not heed the science. It is our peril that we think, like the arrogant man who unfortunately occupies the White House, that he knows more than scientists do. The man can't speak in complete sentences, but he feels equipped to challenge science. And I, I do take very seriously the concerns about civil liberties. One of the things that we are most concerned about here is whether there will be an overzealous application, for example, of martial law as a driver of the way government responds to the disease in Kenya. And I don't think that those concerns are illegitimate. I don't. Yeah, um, I agree. But, and I've just know, seen, I'm not sure if you've seen in Hong which has a... Sorry. Sorry. I, I was just going to say I agree. I'm not sure if you've seen the reports coming out in Hungary about the passing of new laws there, which seem a power grab and an opportunity of uh, dismantling some of the institutions that exist there. I think all these concerns are valid, but I don't think they should be used as an excuse to not act and act quickly to protect our health services and try and preserve life. I agree with you 100%. Look, I mean, the ridiculousness in the United States that Texas and Ohio are using coronavirus lockdowns to prevent women from accessing abortion services, that's nonsense. It's, 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 it's hideous nonsense. It, 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 it's unfathomable to me that people would be so opportunistic. Again, that's the shit show of the world that we're living in right now. I do think, though, that countries like Kenya, I do, I don't know if it's idealist in me who is right now sitting on the cynic in me, but I do believe that most state action in countries where the risk of explosive community transmission is is so great i do believe that the governments do have mostly great intentions to prevent the spread of the disease simply in some ways because they know their systems are ill-equipped to be able to handle them so it's a self-preservation mechanism um, i can't i cannot imagine wanton destruction of civil liberties just to do it just for political power grabs i refuse to believe that, that is going to be the, the basis for state action i really fervently hope that that's not the case i really i really do okay so let's move on specifically to kenya can you just give us an update on the exact situation right now in kenya in terms of the spread of coronavirus and then talk about the response so far yep so I think we were talking at the top of the conversation about 28 cases. We do have confirmed cases of 28, and that was as of last night when the last um, release of information was made by President Kenyatta. We also, last night, when there was the announcement of a countrywide curfew beginning tomorrow night, a number of other financial measures have been put in place by the government to try and stem some of the economic destruction that this is likely to cause. So tax beef for folks earning less than $240 a month, which is a, a decent wage in a country where 60% of the population is reliant on less than $5 a day of income. 
Um, members of cabinet are taking pay cuts. The president is taking pay cuts. Um, quarantine is happening. Commercial flights uh, are being suspended. The light went to the United States yesterday. There are three more flights this weekend to the UK, and then that's it. There are 700 people whose contacts are being traced, who are under close monitoring by Ministry of Health. So I believe those are the ones who are in government quarantine. And then there are a lot of folks who are self-isolating. The United Nations has a massive hub here for a lot of its agencies. It is still operational. Folks are working from home, although some UN agencies in neighboring countries are still requiring their staff to go to work, which makes no sense to me, but we can move on from that. What else? Health workers. There was this, I don't know if you saw the story, that 6 million masks that were purchased by Germany for use in Germany somehow got lost at a Kenyan airport. So I think that's another Kenya-specific story that folks are looking at. But I think there's a real sense that, you know, our health system, we have some of the best private hospitals on the continent, um, but even they are concerned because we just don't have, like you mentioned, we just don't have the ICU facilities. We just don't have the ventilators. And we don't have as much of the medical knowledge that other countries are benefiting from. So you're seeing a lot of really interesting collaboration being driven by WHO. There's been a lot of training at both community and health systems level for teaching folks about social distancing, for talking about things like hand washing, for introducing soap and water into communities that do not benefit from having regular access to those things. Um, And there's a real sense of, okay, let us do the needful to do as much as we can to prevent the spread of disease. Unlike some of our neighbors like Uganda or Rwanda, buses are still going from Nairobi to rural areas, which some folks are suggesting might be a mistake. And I would imagine that a directive is going to be handed down fairly swiftly about that and maybe in, in conjunction with the uh, with the curfew that's going to be imposed tomorrow evening. Okay, thank you, thank you for that. So one of the scariest things in this, and I think you can point to it quite, th- quite through a lot of the things you said, is the lag here. The lag with coronavirus it to, appears to me to be one of the scariest things because, in terms of affection rates, the clusters ap- appear to appear after the implementation of the lockdowns and the death rates tend to appear a good like the high death rates a good two to three weeks after so i guess with someone like kenya even though you're quite early in the number of infections it's very difficult to have a real picture of of where you are both in the major cities and rurally so is that something of concern absolutely and i think that's why you know some of the bold preventative steps like stopping flights and restricting movement is an attempt to try and limit that sort of community level transmission that could be disastrous. Um, You know, we, my family came back from the U S on the 9th of March and we've been in isolation since returning. You know, we've, we recognize that we don't know if we were exposed, therefore, let us make sure that we limit our exposure to other people. And I think, you know, among a lot of us, there is a recognition that we have a personal responsibility to do everything we can to limit the danger that might come from us. I don't know that the feeling that I have with my kids is universally applied. I would hope so. But I, you know, we've seen We've seen folks deny or defying the orders. We've seen gatherings. We've seen folks because they have no other option using public transportation. So the risk is substantive that we didn't move swiftly enough in time. There is very much a risk. And I think we're in a very much a wait and see like the rest of the world. But I do think that African countries 
with our experience with dealing with pandemics, whether it's something like Ebola or even micro or micro epidemics like cholera, um, we know in a lot of ways how to limit community transmission. And I'm really, really hoping that that knowledge uh, will help us through. I, I, I don't know. There's just so much. There's so much that is unknown. Um, and when you hear public health experts expressing their concerns about those unknowns, uh, that's that's when you know that it's 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 fairly serious. When when the people who know the most don't have answers, it's when you stay home and you remain eternally grateful that you have the ability to stay home. So one of the things that's very clear problem in a country such as Kenya is that if we look at the um, the, the facts of uh, coronavirus, a lot of the people who die are all, almost universally related to people with underlying conditions. Uh, although one of the difficulties I'm having with that is, well, what is the underlying condition? Because asthma is very different from terminal uh, stage four cancer. Asthma is a condition you can live with, whereas terminal stage four cancer, you're probably close to death anyway. But by the by, it's, it's related to underlying health conditions. And Kenya, like much of Africa, has a, a problem with uh, HIV and AIDS infection rates. And I've got a twofold question to that. Uh, firstly, I, I'm assuming there is a, a considerable fear about the impact on, on these people. But as a side issue, um, I watched a, a story on the news the other day about a, a young girl who has to go to receive her medical treatment um, every few days. Is the, is the access to the medical treatment that they rely upon, is that also being restricted? Is that another issue? I think that's a really big issue. I think, you know, and underlying medical conditions, it's all very well and good to say that when you know that you can diagnose them. We have such a low rate of diagnosis of some of these underlying medical conditions that the rate of the immunocompromised could be even greater than we even know it to be right now. You know, that's always been one of the hallmarks of Africa's HIV response that the level of diagnosis is lower than it should be because the level of testing is lower than it should be because of social stigma, because of financial resources, because of healthcare resources, right? So we don't know what the underlying burden of disease for a lot of these potential comorbidities, these illnesses that could make it worse. You know, if you look at respiratory illness already is one of the leading killers of children under age five. In, in Africa and in Kenya. So yeah. what does that mean? If you're already immunocompromised because of a respiratory illness that hasn't been diagnosed, of course you're gonna be much more vulnerable to have a much more severe case of the coronavirus, right? But because diagnostics are not where they should be, the level of immunocompromisation or compromise, I think might be the better word for that, is substantive. There's just, we just don't know. You know, you've got folks, we've got a huge amount of tuberculosis in a country like Kenya, which is incredibly contagious. So could you imagine the comorbidity of TB and coronavirus? And folks, like you were saying, using public transport, because they have no other means of transport, to get to a facility to get their TB meds. And while they're getting treatment for TB, they're infected with coronavirus, right? So they're, we just, the, the level of co-infection is, is, is very risky and, and potentially very high. We just don't know. What about coordination across Africa? What, what is happening with regards to that? Um, so there was, there's been some really positive, I think, acknowledgement of the need for collaboration. Um, there was an, a minister's of finance meeting a couple days ago asking for a combined emergency economic stimulus package of $100 billion, including a waiver of about $44 billion in interest payments. And then yesterday, there was an announcement by the Bretton Woods organizations, the World Bank and the IMF, that they would recommend that there would be... Um, some debt relief and encouraging bilateral creditors to suspend debt payments. So I think that's really positive. 
The ministers also agreed on the need for a coordinated response in health, which means potentially coordinated or pooled procurement of the uh, commodities like masks, ventilators, gloves, and the other commodities needed to treat the disease. So I think that's really interesting. And that sounds really good. You know, we've done a lot of work um, on the continent of late for more integrated approaches to trade and more integrated management of economies. And I wonder if this might be just the kick in the ass that that sort of initial conversation would need to make things happen. But, you know, borders are closing. Um, countries are trying to turn inward to protect their own. You look at a country like Rwanda that's been fairly dependent on foreign aid for quite some time is taking some really hardline measures to close down the country because of the lack of testing and the lack of diagnosis. They don't want to risk folks crossing land borders and stretching already strange strained health systems. So how does coordination look at the high level when the practical realities is that countries are self-isolating as a protection mechanism? Again, I don't think we've seen the extent of what that is going to look like. But I am heartened by the sense that Africa together needs to demand uh, a coordinated response or coordinated assistance from outside. What, what in the way of outside help are you seeing support for? I, I watched the WHO press conference yesterday and the risks that were outlined there, you can certainly see are, are going to be uh, there are higher risks in, in, in Africa. What kind of support do you think needs to come from the outside world? And, and, and do you worry about this? Because we're at a time of economic crisis globally. Uh, a lot of money is having to be focused locally on uh, protecting local workers in, in Western economies. Do you fear that there's going to be a lack of money to, to provide support in Africa? I think that there's been a consistent downward trend of official development or overseas development assistance to Africa for the last very long time and this is only going to exacerbate that you know you look at humanitarian appeals for famine and chronic food shortages across the continent that are completely underfunded and this is only going to add to that there is a there is a waning of global interest in providing africa with the assistance that it needs and uh this is just going to make it worse and it's very concerning it's uh, it's impossibly difficult, which may mean that you know the continent is turning to some of its less savory partners, and you could argue that the the northern European, uh, North American uh, aid model isn't going to work anymore, and then the continent looks even more closely to China and appeals to China to be its savior, which is dangerous in a number of ways because of the huge exploitation of natural resources, the lack of protection of those civil liberties that we were talking about earlier. So there is a there is a huge risk, one, that the rest of the world is going to say, screw you, Africa, we've got our own problems to deal with, leaving this continent even less equipped to deal with the impact of this disease, and that the continent's leaders make decisions to make dicey, dicey choices about where it looks for its assistance and that's that's dangerous in the short and in the long term for the continent's uh, economic health and well-being yeah I, I can certainly see that geopolitical shift happening all right well look i've really appreciated this it's going to be really useful for getting out to people to understand what what is happening in africa is there anything else that i've not asked you that you think is a critically important question that i should have asked you that you would you would like to be asked and get out as part of this interview i think um i think we've i've had i had some stuff written down next to me and i think i hit all the points on that list i hope it was useful for you oh very, very useful I hope for I me didn't, you know yeah, I'm. You know, I have a. I, okay. I'm watching. I'm watching what's happening here locally. Uh, it's very hard to find accurate information, but I. Th I think the best 
the best signal right now is the reports from frontline medical staff. It doesn't matter if that's the historical information in China, what we're seeing from doctors in Italy, or what we're seeing now in London. For me, that is the strongest signal of the risk right now. And I just have a natural fear for the people in Africa, what's going to happen across the continent. So I really appreciate you coming on and giving me some time with this. And if anyone can, what, I mean, what kind of support can people provide if they're interested? Uh Gosh, I mean, there are a lot of new community mobilization projects that are coming up, and they are very micro. Um, I would say the best thing people can do is give money to the World Health Organization and demand that their government stop shirking its responsibility to the WHO, um, because the WHO is chronically and criminally underfunded, um, and that's now the, the the impact of that is very very clear um especially for the continent so i would say individuals support the who uh and demand that their governments support the who for all its faults it is the best source of consistent information and support that countries in the developing world have right now yeah, I do. I do worry that at the end of this, that the WHO is going to be in quite a precarious position, though, for early um, information that was released that seemed in alignment with the CCP, which was now incorrect. I think they post coronavirus, yeah. they're going to be um, in for some quite severe criticism relating to that. Um, but that's that's possibly. Yeah. Let, let's save that for another day. Let's save that for another day. Okay, listen, all the best for you with everything you're doing and please stay safe and stay healthy and thank you so much for giving thank me you. some of your time today, Lauren. You. And you too, don't forget to wash your hands. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I do hope you enjoyed this interview with Lauren and were able to get a lens into the specific problems that Africa faces. I found the conversation fascinating but also very worrying for both Kenya and the African continent as a whole with dense populations and a high number of infectious diseases, weak healthcare systems, coronavirus could prove to be devastating both socially and economically. So I'm going to continue looking at the lesser discussed impacts of coronavirus and will likely follow up on how African countries are handling the disease. Anyway, if you found this interesting or you have any questions, do feel free to reach out to me. Before we close out, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you want to support the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about this show or any other show I've made, please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.